So Derek, let me get this straight. You're killing people? No, I'm podcasting. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a new episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where your boy Mansfield and Derek, we both discuss horror movies, their social relevancy, how scary they are for newbies, and all the other deeper cool stuff. And this is our 69th episode. Nice. So we're going to be tackling a uh, sex-related movie. We wanted to do something kind of kitschy for 69, and we had a couple of options, but uh, we chose Jennifer's Body because it seemed like there was a lot to talk about here. We are man-children. That's why we decided to do a sex-related <laughs> horror movie. Uh, we had done It Follows for our second one, so that was out. But we also wanted to like keep it a decent discussion and be sex positive and all that not just based off of 69 being a pretty nice number anyway we are going to be discussing 2009 written by diablo cody and directed by karen kusama jennifer's body and once again we have the awesome vp morris on as our guest for this special episode hey guys thanks for having me i'm glad to be here for the big six nine <laughs> <laughs> yep for those of you who don't remember we had v on for silence of the lambs episode which I think was episode 56. And back then, V, you were just releasing Shadowcast, your first full-length novel. Um, you had done a bunch of writing previously, like short stories, and I think you had done some work for Fear Street or another website that does horror movies and horror-based content. Nightmare on Film Street. I see where your brain went, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Not, yeah I'm thinking Fear Street because of <laughs> the recent, but Shadowcast has since come out. I actually mm-hmm. uh, recommended it on a recent episode because I'm reading through it. Still haven't finish it because hey new dad life i am working slowly through books but i'm more than halfway through it it's an easy read it's fun um it's suspenseful but you have other stuff that you're working on that is coming out later this year right yeah so i'm gonna be releasing three separate short stories um they're gonna be kindle short reads just only 99 cents super cheap super fast reads so if you don't have that time for a full novel because i am also a somewhat new parent my kid's almost 12 months old so i know what it's like to not have all the time in the world for (laughs) a book. Um, So I've got three of them coming out on the first day of fall. So that's September 21st. And they all have to do with hauntings, but outside of the house. So like other common places like a haunted freeway exit, a haunted office building, and a haunted horror movie, which I know appeal to your guys' audience. And I do have in April, my second book will be coming out another psychological thriller called Dead Ringer. But that's obviously a ways away. But keep that on the uh, back burner. Oh, yeah. And you absolutely you also are the host of I forgot to mention this, the Dead Letters podcast, which you had wrapped up relatively recently, mm-hmm. which that is an excellent audio psychological thriller drama podcast, which again, our listeners, we had recommended on episode 56. We recommend it again. Check that out as well. But if you want to read Shadowcast, you can get it at Black Rose Writing. Is there anywhere else they can order it, uh, V? Yeah, you can get it at Barnes and Nobles and you can get it on Amazon. On Amazon, it's uh, both the digital and the print version because it is a kindle exclusive nice hell yeah awesome cool cool well let's uh go ahead and get started with some recommendations that we have this week uh just anything horror related or horror adjacent that we have been reading playing watching etc as always we will start with our guests so v have you checked out anything else horror related lately that you want to bring up yeah i've got two recommendations they're both on the i guess spectrum of good but not amazing so like i've been looking for stuff i can just sort of get through and 
hour and a half that isn't like super intense. And I found on Netflix, The Block Island Sound, which is um, a 2020, so really recent horror story. It's a little slow at the beginning, but it definitely, if you stick with it, it kind of builds up. And a random cool fact is there's a kind of a rumor in my family that we're related to the guy who discovered Block Island because my huh. great grandmother's maiden name or something is Block. So I thought it was kind of cool slash creepy that there's like a story about the Block Island sound and I don't know, I've got like a family somewhat history related to it. And then I also watched a old movie from 1962, The Carnival of Souls. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, like a uh, like a long episode of the old school Twilight Zone. It has, you know, kind of a freaky twist. Obviously, you know, special effects are not up to our current standard. So, you know, bear that in mind going in because these people haven't even seen, you know, like Rosemary's Baby in 1962. But it's, it's a good, fun thrill. It's only like an hour and 15-ish minutes, so it's good to kind of throw on if you don't want to sit through a long horror movie. It's a very good Sunday afternoon movie in that warm blanket kind of sense because it's very atmospheric and it's very dreamlike, and there's just something about that type of movie that's just kind of comforting to put on while you're like doing background stuff. I really I really like it in that sense because it just kind of gives you some atmosphere and vibe for whatever you're doing. Yeah, and I remember we had a conversation a little bit V like when we're planning out having you on this episode and you had mentioned these two films as as your recommendations and I was like we I don't even think we've brought up Carnival of Souls before but I remember reading up on this when we were making our list of horror movies that we wanted to do which we probably need to add this one to the list by the way Aaron the thing that I found fascinating about Carnival of Souls specifically is that it's an independent horror movie from 1962 but the other thing that kind of drew my uh, attention was that people like David Lynch and George Romero have stated that this movie has had influence on their work and especially like David Lynch that makes me be like okay this has my attention now with us being such Lynch fanboys but as far as the other one goes the Block Island Sound what exactly is the Block Island Sound like what's that based off of because I've never heard of this before I don't know if it's fully independent but it's definitely like a smaller low budget film um I also don't think it met to as much fanfare because you know the pandemic was raging on and things kind of got lost in the shovel in 2020 but basically a bunch of weird things keep happening on the Block Island Sound, which there's this tiny island between Rhode Island and uh, Long Island out in um, the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm in Connecticut, so like I'm actually only like an hour or two away from this particular area. And like weird stuff like the fish keep dying and birds just like keep showing up on the beach with their necks broken. And <laughs> Whoa. yeah, the main character's father like is like having memory loss and like he just will wake up in the middle of the ocean on his boat and not know how he got there. And then the same thing starts happening happening to the sun and they're trying to figure out what's causing it and you know there's like all these things of psychiatrists can't figure it out and scientists can't figure it out so it's like this creepy and suspenseful like why is this happening to these two men and why why is it like affecting the wildlife around them is it based off of any kind of real life events or occurrences or legends not that i know i mean there's it's called like an eco horror so i still like there's obviously some real life to that because because we are humans that are messing with our environment. Kind of like how the birds was, you know, based off of when all those seagulls flooded that area of California. So not a specific event, but you can tell that there's definitely a, um, just like an undercurrent of, it's possible that, you know, like humans or something else could 
mess with our ecosystem in a similar way. That's a very timely uh, recommendation then because we had just done the bay not too long ago Mm -hmm. for one of our episodes and the bay is the exact same thing except it's killer um, what are they again mollusks or isopods isopods, that's right yeah they were killer (laughs) isopods but yeah that's interesting I will have to keep this on my radar too I'm going to pull it up and keep it open on one of my tabs. Yeah there's some some serious creepy vibes it has the villain from 13 and 14 cameras is in it he plays the father i forget the actor's name but he does a good job at bringing that creep factor awesome thanks for those recommendations derek we will move on to you sir what have you got for us i've got a chunk so i might take up a good bit of time on this the first one i'm gonna get up right off the bat and this is a shout out specifically to our buddy jeff dr jeff who's been on the nightmare as well as our second viewing of blood rage jeff has been on aaron and i's ass to watch a short film called am 1200 I finally watched it. It is directed, written, and produced by David Pryor. It really has a cast of pretty much just three people, Eric Lang, John Billingsley, and Ray Wise, Leland Palmer himself from Twin Peaks. And you know what? I have to hand it to Jeff. I can see why he loves this film. It is worth a watch. It is only 39 minutes long. You can watch it over a meal even. It's, It's a quick watch, but it is thrilling. The amount of stuff that David Pryor is able to fit in the 39 minutes is pretty amazing. It's a tale of two acts in this movie. The first act and the setup is actually kind of a little bit similar to Psycho and that it's like a man on the run kind of thing uh, where Psycho is a woman on the run with her business. This guy kind of does the same thing. It's just him and his business partner tried to fuck over their company. It seems like it went poorly and now he's on the run and that's how it starts. While he's on the run, he's trying to tune in over the AM band on his car to like stay awake and drive through the night and he stops on AM 1200 and he hears an emergency call from someone just saying like, we need help someone's bodily harm please come transmitting from this radio station called kbal and it's transmitting from mount zaphon and mount zaphon if you look it up is actually a mountain located in the syrian and turkish border along the lines i don't know if it's supposed to literally be mount zaphon in that area like if there's some kind of like weird he goes through a portal and he winds up on this mountain that's in a completely different country but as the film progresses he basically unwittingly shows up at the radio station his car breaks down he walks into the radio station finds a man handcuffed to a pole and i'll stop there that covers like the first half of the movie and i don't want to say much more because i don't want to give away anything else it is very much though an hp lovecraft inspired short film the reveal and the directions it goes are pretty frightening. It is a great, great, great horror short film to watch if you are a coward like me of jump scares. This is much more atmospheric, much more dread-inducing. Packs a powerful punch by the end. Sat with me for a few days, creeping in dread. Cannot recommend it enough. Jeff, get off my ass. I finally watched your short film and I liked it. <laughs> but yes, Aaron, it balls in your cord, bud. You need to watch it now. Oh, I watched so, uh, it. I watched it in prep for our Cullen Bunn episode. Well, the one before that, because I watched The Empty Man and that's the same director. That's right. That's how this got brought up was he does The Empty Man. Uh, what did you think of AM 1200? Because I don't think I actually got your thoughts on it when you watched it. 
Oh, I dug it. It was pretty great. Again, he has been putting together all the supplemental material and making of stuff for a lot of David Fincher's recent movies. His style very much seems to be influenced by Fincher in a lot of ways. So I, I dug it a lot. It was very clever, well-made, all said and done. So I mean, I, I would definitely recommend checking it out for sure. Yeah, and the thing that surprised me is how much it drew me in because it's very methodically paced. And when the guy finally walks through the door of this abandoned radio station, my attention, like I'm fully absorbed in and it's an intense ride. I was impressed by it. I, I really enjoy this. And I saw that it's actually on YouTube. I don't know if that's like an official account or a fan just uploaded it, but you can watch on YouTube. You can actually watch it for free on Vimeo. And I recommend the Vimeo one because the quality is better. I think it's the yeah. actual, like the actual director released it on there anyway. Just set aside like 40 minutes to yourself and you're in for a treat. Second thing is I was in the mood for some doom metal, but I was in the mood for some like 80s kind of doom metal and i randomly just hopped on a rate near uh, music.com and just kind of searched like what are the best traditional doom metal albums right the one that was recommended the most was an album from Candlemass called epicus doomicus yeah. metalcus oh yeah it's exactly what i wanted because it was released in like 1986 it is a lot of cheese it is a lot of let's read lyrics from like the book of the dead kind of thing yeah it's very much scooby-doo metal yeah it's like right on that thin line of hair metal and like straight up doom like it's a little more over it's it's way more over the top than like black sabbath but there are a lot of european kind of heavy metal scene aspects to it and it makes me laugh because it is very like when you think of a prototypical like someone who loves horror but also loves metal like this is the album that they would have on the second track on it demon's gate is straight up just the song that the kid plays in the gate <laughs> yeah it's that song basically it is full of cheese it is full of devil worship but because we want to be cool and get laid it's very operatic the singer is almost a little too much for me Thing that I love about the title is that it's in dog Latin and the dog Latin is epic doom metal. So that's kind of like what you're working with when you listen to it. But it is, it's a solid album. It, it flows really well. It, none of the tracks really stood out in a good or a bad way. It was just like a nice listen the whole way through. Yeah. If you want to just listen to some heavy metal cheese with some like doomy riffs and lyrics about summoning demons, then like go for it. This is a solid album. That's kind of a great juxtaposition considering 
the uh, music in the movie that we're going to be discussing is way more on the surface innocent, but way more sinister in that it burrows into your head. And emo rock from the aughts definitely has that factor to it where you just can't get it out of your head. There's something way more sinister about that. <laughs> yeah, and we'll jump ahead a little bit right here. In Jennifer's body, it has that, but then it has like fucking celestial crown by the sword at one point playing when she's walking out of the lake. Yeah. That scene, I was like, wait, is this the fucking sword? But that's jumping ahead. So yes, Epicus Dumicus Metalcus by Candlemass. It's not for everyone and you have to be in the mood for it, but it is some solid demon summoning metal. My next recommendation is a comic book. And if there's another author right now next to Colin Bunn who is really pushing horror and comic books lately, it's James Tinian IV. And this is a new title from James Tinian IV. He's writing specifically for DC Comics called The Nice House on the Lake. I have these. I have not read either of them yet. Okay, because I don't want to give too much away because the setup is really fascinating. At the time of this recording, I've only read the first two issues. I don't know if more issues are out by the time this drops probably like the third and fourth issue will be out the setup is that everyone has known this guy named walter throughout like different stages of their lives like college after college like being young people living in new york city some of them like have kind of lost touch with walter some of them are still decent friends with him and just out of the blue they all receive this invitation from him through the email saying hey guys i want to take a trip to this lake i've rented out or i bought this really nice ass lake house we can spend the weekend together please i'm begging you like i'm cashing in all my favors as a friends and all that whatever you do please come this weekend like i promise drop whatever other plans you have and like come that's the setup so they arrive at the lake house and it seems too good to be true kind of lake house walter shows up and while they're hanging out something happens that I don't want to reveal. It is revealed in the first issue, but like, let's just say it goes into apocalyptic horror route, but it's not an apocalypse you're expecting. And like why Walter invites them to this lake house is not quite why you expect either. I don't know if V or Aaron, either of you have ever had that childhood dream of what if you could get your best friends and you all lived in like a mansion together and everything was provided for you and you all could be friends forever, like not having to worry about anything in the world happening everything's taken care of and it's the nicest mansion in the world i've had that thought as a kid or even as a teenager growing up and that very much is like this comic book take that infantile idea or wish make it true but then put something horrifying in the backdrop of it okay and walter's origin itself is also horrifying which is also revealed in the first issue but james tinney in the fourth is knocking it out of the park with horror right now he's also writing something is killing the children and the department of truth which are both excellent titles as well yeah so yeah the nice house on the lake please check it out the first issue was fantastic the second issue takes the ball and continues to run then the last recommendation i have is i came across a website called does the dog die.com and this <laughs> yeah, website's uh, yeah. whole mission is to let you know in movies tv books and i think even like video games if the dog dies or if an animal dies or if there's any kind of animal harm it does focus a little bit on horror and the way it works is you search a title for instance earlier i put in the strangers and it pulls up the movie the strangers from 2008 the top thing is 
Is there a dead animal? No, just a deer head mounted on the wall. Does the dog <laughs> die? No. Does an animal die? No. Besides a dog, cat, or horse? No. Are animals abused? No. Like it answers all the questions and it's voted by fans, I think, or like people who are answering these vote in yes or no. So it's people who watch these and like answer the questions. So if you want to go specifically into horror movies, uh, wanting to know, does an innocent animal or an animal get harmed in any way? Does the dog die.com is your go to source because Aaron and I joke about how that is a trope in a ton of horror movies how the pet gets murdered <laughs> yeah I get how like lots of people could be extra sensitive to that for sure so it's nice that there is a site to be able to check that kind of thing yeah um, especially if you're watching horror movies because it happens a lot yeah we all have our thresholds certainly like lord knows if we ever get to the point where we're both willing to cover cannibal holocaust on this show like i'm not watching the one with all the animal cruelty in it like there is a specific cut of that movie that eliminates all of that trash from the movie so it's nice that there is a resource for that for everything else let alone the extreme stuff so that's a good resource well since you brought it up aaron let me search cannibal holocaust no and... don't don't even because there's too much awful shit in that movie which <laughs> is part of the reason why uh oh yeah i don't even want to think about covering it yeah the top answer is is there a dead animal and 19 people voted yes one voted no i don't know who the psycho is that voted no on that but that's no, probably the person who watched the animal cruelty free version not realizing oh all that was cut out so. true yeah there you go but it does say does the dog die no no dogs die in the cannibal Holocaust. yeah no dogs die plenty of other animals do though yeah i love animals too much <laughs> <laughs> i like nature reserves i don't want to see animals die i still stand that one of the scariest movies we've covered so far is autopsy of jane doe and one of the most terrifying things and also like upsetting things about that movie is the cat gets killed so sure all right cool well um i've got three movies to recommend real quick the first again kind of a horror adjacent title in that it's a kaiju movie but i checked out 2016's shin godzilla from hideaki Anno, the guy who made evangelion it was super interesting it was definitely not like a lot of the other godzilla and kaiju movies that i'm used to there is way more palpable dread and existential terror in this one Godzilla is definitely not a like, yay, he's going to beat up the other monster kind of thing. Like, he is awful and unknowable and just this strange thing. And his the way that he functions in the movie is interesting because he doesn't just fully come out as a big stomping lizard monster. He literally starts as like a weird ocean worm, like a tadpole, grows kind of a head and some tiny limbs and like slithers up through all these rivers and channels and just shoving boats and cars and stuff out of the way and little by little it grows legs and then it grows these little arms and then it can stand up and then it kind of fully becomes Godzilla and it's awful it's the most uncanny gross thing it's like when you're a kid and you're watching tadpoles form but it has like this awful chicken head with goggle eyes and weird teeth and everything it looks so goofy but at the same time it's so creepy when it's yeah 80 stories high right because that movie is met with people either love it or hate it i haven't watched it and i don't know anything about it so now that you're describing that i can see kind of why i love that i love that idea of turning godzilla into like a force of nature almost 
almost Cthulhu monster. It's so weird. Instead of just having him big monster fight monkey. Yeah. That's an interesting take on it. I mean, granted, I'm glad there are other Godzilla more like tongue-in-cheek and, and over-the-top movies, but that's a great take on it to make it like an unknowable force of nature. Yeah, this was for sure like a totally different flavor. And I mean, that's a thousand percent because it was written and directed by the guy who did Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I am not a anime person at all. That was just one of those shows that like a couple of our friends were like, okay, watch through that entire show. It's like 20 episodes and you'll be done. And that show is all about the existential dread of I am a teenager. I have to fight giant unknowable monsters that are attacking Earth. All this responsibilities on my shoulder. Now I'm crippled with PTSD. So a lot of that same kind of thought is put into this movie as well. And I'll be honest, most of the movie is people in board boardrooms talking about what to do and that sounds really boring <laughs> but i think it's just one of those things where like we've been in the last year and a half so fucking soaked in all the day-to-day minutiae of covid and how our response is gonna work and how other countries are responding to it all the like crazy unprecedented steps that we have to take to like get through this right and so much of the movie is also talking about japan's ability to like self-determine what their destiny is going to be and how they are so kind of handcuffed to the U.S. specifically if they want to take any like measures to defend themselves. It involves getting like the U.S. involved and the U.S. military involved and all that. They can't just make a decision unilaterally in their own interests. There's lots of commentary about how like bureaucratic the Japanese government is and how long everything takes to get done. Their entire response to like, oh, a giant fucking monster just came out of the bay and is attacking the city now and destroying things. There's a million hoops and reels of red tape we have to jump through to get anything moving, right? (laughs) All that is really, really interesting and not what you typically see in these kinds of movies. And it's following several different chunks of characters as they're kind of all reacting to it. So I would definitely recommend checking it out if you're at all interested in kaiju stuff because it's a completely different take on it. And Godzilla truly is force of nature horrifying you know through a lot of it it's just him growing and they're like what is going on but when he finally like unleashes the full atomic breath it's not just glowing blue beam out of his mouth it is like the most insane chaotic destructive thing that is like fucking horrifying so yeah i would Definitely, definitely recommend checking it out if you're interested in kaiju stuff. Next recommendation, I got in a chunk of Scream Factory pre-orders. We mentioned on the last episode, Dead Zone is coming out on Blu-ray. It should be out by the time that episode drops. And I also got Brotherhood of the Wolf and House of Wax. And House of Wax is the only one that I have actually rewatched so far. The original or the remake? Because uh, there are no, fans the of the remake. remake. Yeah. The remake, okay, cool. It is the same weird, glossy, aughts trash that Jennifer's body is in a way where it's very much just the douchiest teens on the surface (laughs) that are all actually 27 years old and not high schoolers and it's a lot of really bad attempts at humor a couple of homophobic jokes that don't age well right it's like that kind of stuff it's like Alicia Cuthbert Jared Padalecki from Supernatural it's just like a lot of that crew of people right Paris Hilton is kind of most famously in this movie the first first half of it is kind of the eye-rolly stuff where you're just like, all right, come on, this is just recycling a lot of the tropes. There from... are some pretty good kills, though, in that first half from what I remember. Oh, there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There definitely are. Ultimately, that's where I'm going is, like, the last half of the movie is 
pretty fucking good. There's some gnarly shit in it. Just the special effects are really killer. Get it? Really killer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the sets are pretty awesome. Like, watching this entire building, like, kind of all melt and fall apart and fire and everything else. The story is pretty generic and exactly kind of what you would expect. But it was much more entertaining than I remembered it being. And I don't know that I ever actually finished this movie the first time I saw it. Because I don't remember the ending at all. And the ending was great. It was definitely a lot of fun. You know, we'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute. But that's one where I distinctly remember the marketing for that movie being completely built around the fucking misogynist kind of angle of, hey, you know that bitch Paris Hilton that you all fucking hate? This movie's gonna kill her. Like, yeah, that's the entire marketing for the I movie. I remember that just, too. We're gonna murder Paris Hilton in this movie. And yeah, she gets killed. So does everybody else. But like, that was kind of the only angle that they were pushing. Yep. Yeah. You know, and there's way more interesting shit going on in the movie besides that. But that's where the marketing chose to go for obvious reasons, you know. But that just kind of shows how far we've come, at least from then, in terms of being more self-aware with like, that's kind of gross, right? Let's not do that anymore. So, I mean, things have definitely gotten better since then, but it was one of those things I just distinctly remember that being the entire, like, reason to go see the movie at the time was, hey, we're gonna kill Paris Hilton. But yeah, the movie in and of itself, definitely interesting and fun. Not perfect, obviously. But uh, for what I'm calling it, Sarah's, like, first movie pretty solid but he's gone on to do some other fairly interesting stuff as well too and then the last recommendation i have is a release that literally just came out yesterday on blu-ray it'll have been out for a while once i talk about this and it will be up on shutter that is travis stevens's 2021 movie jacob's wife this is the great barbara crampton and larry fezenden in a kind of religiously tinged vampire movie fezenden is a minister in a small southern town. Crampton is his wife and it's very much kind of playing on a lot of gender tropes and especially a lot of the like religious wife has to be subservient to husband kind of stuff. Barbara Crampton gets bit by a vampire and becomes badass vampire lady who suddenly realizes oh I can like do more with my life than what I'm doing right now and things kind of get complicated and darkly comedic but that movie was definitely a lot of fun and weirdly enough it was shot in Canton Mississippi like right down the road so (laughs) it shot like right before COVID happened is there any reason why they did it there or it's cheap yeah I mean I'd imagine yeah I'd imagine yeah but yeah it was uh it was a lot of fun I would definitely recommend checking that one out if not for anything but just like the two leads are always fantastic I would also mention Bonnie Aarons is in it as well she plays the lead vampire master Nosferatu character she is one of those actresses that definitely needs more praise from the horror community because she has been involved in so much stuff. Most notably recently, she is the nun in the nun movies and all the Conjuring movies. She is also the like burned homeless man behind the dumpster in Mulholland Drive. That's the same person? I didn't know yeah. that. And wow. I'd like to add the Baroness from Princess Diaries. Yes, she is. <laughs> yes. Really? Wow. She has been in like a 
wild range of stuff. Uh, yeah, after we record, I'm looking her IMDb up. That's wild. Yeah, so she definitely deserves more attention and recognition because she's also great in this movie too. So it's very, like I said, darkly comedic, but there's also lots of fucking gore and lots of like extreme ridiculous shit in the movie. But yeah, Barbara Crampton is always great. So definitely, definitely worth checking out. Okay, well, um, I think that's going to be it for recommendations. And uh, let's go ahead and get right into Jennifer's body. So again, it is a 2009 movie written by Diablo Cody. Um, She was kind of coming off of Juno and her Oscar win for that movie. And it was directed by Karin Kusama, who at the time had directed Girl Fight and Aeon Flux. Um, So this was kind of her next project. This is our second movie from her that we covered because we covered The Invitation. Yes, A while back. And eventually, I'll be excited to talk about her actual Dracula movie once that comes out, because that is what she's working on now. So yeah, this is uh, 2009's Jennifer's Body. You and me are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay? You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? Well, this is random. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way. We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Why, Chip? You're killing people. No, I'm killing boys. I'm scared. I only murder boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to, okay? You can barely finish gym class. So, Jennifer's body. Right off the bat, again, we're man children. Episode 69, we had to do something like this. <laughs> I think the other option was teeth, but I'm glad we went with Jennifer's body over teeth because this movie fucking rules, by the way. <laughs> Hell yeah. I was blown away. You brought it up with House of Wax, the remake. I remember when this movie was coming out because this was after her appearance in Transformers. Yes. And they marketed this movie terribly. They marketed it very much just like Megan. Fox and Amanda Seyfried are totally going to make out in this movie. Are you ready? You might even get to see your naked. They basically like Spike TV kind of marketing to it to the point where even like the theatrical release poster is very much of that same vein. And this movie was way funnier than I was expecting it to be. The entire thing feels like an inverted trope, but not only an inverted trope on like demon man stalking women or, or you know, just some trope in horror movies that we've seen time and time 
time again, but also even felt like an inverted trope of the expectations that were put on Megan Fox as like being just the pretty face in movies. Her use in Transformers is very dated and even felt dated when like that movie came out and the marketing of this movie also makes it feel dated, but when you actually sit through the movie and watch it, it feels like Megan Fox is A, having the time of her life in this role and B, is in on the joke. It feels like she is playing an inverted trope version of what Hollywood is expecting of her. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the the marketing definitely messed it up. I mean, like, it's pretty well documented in the horror community now that they did not really know what they were doing and that they probably didn't even, I guess, pay the script to any mind and just were like, ah, Megan Fox, hot, scary stuff. So hot plus scary equals this. Yeah, so I was the same age as these characters are supposed to be in 2009, so 16 slash 17, and like their high school experience is so similar to mine, and I would have liked to have seen it when it came out, but because the marketing, I thought it was going to either be over the top with ridiculous scares, and and I wasn't as thick of a skin for horror as I did, as I do now, so I was like, oh, it's going to either be too scary, or it's just going to be like, yeah, the Transformers, it's just going to be Megan Fox being attractive in various semi-scary situations, and especially, I don't know if the poster you're talking about, is it the one with her on the desk or the one with her in the woods? The one with her on the desk is the one that I've seen the most of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That almost like it has like a hot for teacher vibe to it. Yeah. And I just was like, I don't think this is for me, but then yet learning that it's actually was meant for like a younger woman audience and that they just completely missed the mark with the marketing is a bummer. Yeah, it is. And Aaron and I, when this movie came out, we were in the middle of college because Aaron, you were in your junior year. I was in my sophomore year and I had seen Transformers like the semester before because that came out relatively recent before this movie did. And I mean, I remember like that scene in Transformers where it's just her sitting on the bike and like the camera is just good going around and around her like Michael Bay fucking bullshit shot and I just thought okay they just watched only that part of Transformers like what if we did that but made it a horror movie and that's what I thought this movie was going to be because of the marketing so I completely skipped on it in fact I slept on this movie probably until only a couple years ago like when Aaron and I have had conversations about it and I started reading like people revisiting this movie it actually has gotten a pretty big revisionist movement after Me Too back in 2018-2019 the Me Too movement and it is completely not the movie you are I mean it has elements still of like that kind of like mid 2000s aught trash where it's like some of the music cues are like a little eye rolly but otherwise beyond just like some of that kind of stuff between the dialogue and the characters and just everything being such an exaggeration on certain tropes to the point where like again everyone feels like they're in on the joke especially Megan Fox it is way more clever than you would ever expect it to be like this is such a clever horror movie and it's a pretty good just from standard scares and all that it's a pretty good horror movie in general because it is a little light on jump scares but the jump scares it does have are pretty effective there are a couple moments where jennifer herself is genuinely terrifying yeah the scenes of her just in the dark just grinning maniacally with blood dripping all over her face and just kind of staring are pretty unsettling bruh Mm -hmm. that scene towards the like the beginning like the first 20 or 30 minutes where she just shows up at her house after the the concert and like disappears behind her and she's all bloody i fucking jumped pretty hard at that scene i was like oh fuck yeah v you had actually messaged me when we were talking about this and brought this up that at the time of this recording it's on hulu by the way mm-hmm. but i'm sure you can find it anywhere but v you mentioned that hulu actually has it uh listed as it under comedy yeah i was blown away 
by that. I was, I mean, if you go to Wikipedia, it says horror comedy, which is how I would describe it. But honestly, like it's, it's a, it's an odd movie. It's almost like defies genre in a way. But the fact that it's just listed as comedy, I was, my first thought was like, oh, when they get to the scene where she comes to the house, these people who think it's a comedy movie are going to be in for a rude awakening. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But it is, it is genuinely funny too. Cause like Jennifer herself in the movie, just every other line out of her is like a sexual innuendo. It's hard to describe because it's not done in a way that's like annoying. It's done in a way that is genuinely funny or it's creepy as fuck. The scene that probably everyone thinks of is the scene where she's holding the lighter to her own tongue and burning it and says, I am a god, which is a fantastic scene. It's actually one of my favorite quotes from this movie, but there are so many other good quotes and other moments throughout it. Let's actually start there. So I remember when this movie came out, I had been hearing a lot of buzz about it from the festival circuit and Fox Atomic had been relentlessly marketing the shit out of this movie, like up to a year before it actually ended up coming out at Sundance. They had a Comic-Con thing where they like showed off the first poster. Again, this was post-Transformers and this was post-Juno. And both of those kind of came out in the same year. And there was this heavy backlash to Diablo Cody because everybody felt like her writing was maybe like too quippy, too smarmy, too cutesy for, okay, all these characters have the same voice, blah, blah, blah. Like everybody had those criticisms, right? And I'll fully admit, I still don't like Juno. And that's a big reason why. Juno does not work for me on, on any level. But I guess because it's a horror in the backdrop, of what this movie is it works so well in this movie where it doesn't work in juno for me i think this movie has a camp factor to it that juno doesn't and i think that's part of the reason why it works better yeah juno is the same voice but trying to be way more achingly sincere and, you know, I don't get the criticism of the dialogue is all too stylized, it's not realistic, blah, blah, blah. Fuck it, neither is any of Daniel Waters' dialogue that he wrote for Heathers, neither is, like, any of the John Hughes dialogue in Ferris Bueller or Breakfast Club or Sixteen Candles. Like, all those characters talk not how normal, real teenagers will talk, right? They talk like movie teenagers. So, I don't get that criticism because, it, like, it's, it, I think it literally just boils down to, like, misogyny the end of the day because we love those other movies they're all great oh how clever they are woman writes them okay no this is like immediately dismissed right yeah i don't have a good reason for hating juno it just doesn't work for me for some reason i think it's more just the indie style of it is so indie 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 in your face that like it doesn't work for me whereas this does the jason reitman yeah. part of it's what doesn't work for me because again yeah. it's trying to be a little more achingly sincere than like what the script really is but you know there was definitely backlash to her she also won an oscar for juno which that kind of rubbed a lot of film snobs the wrong way and then again with megan fox you know, she was in Transformers. She had been in a bunch of TV stuff before then, but she was in Transformers and she was so hypersexualized in that movie. Granted, she was a grown woman when the movie was filmed, but she's ostensibly playing a high schooler. And Michael Bay has a weird thing about doing that all the time, right? Are we yeah. really fetishizing like what's supposed to be like a 16 year old girl, right? That's kind of, you know, icky. But, you know, she instantly was kind of the it girl at the time that everybody was talking about there was kind of that immediate backlash to her because she suddenly achieved that level of exposure and stardom and she was on every fucking magazine that you could think of she was just so ubiquitous in the culture that year that people just got 
tired of seeing her, right? Now, the other thing I'll say is, in the background of all this, like, let's set our minds backwards to when we were living that time. Think about all the, like, really grossly frat bro dude kind of stuff that was popular at the time. Think about, do they serve beer in hell? Or what was the, like, other one that was, like, the Max Fisher guide to, like, picking up women or whatever? Yeah, there was a lot of bro humor. There was a lot of those kind of books at the time that were just, hey, this is my memoirs of being a frat douche and picking up girls at bars. The Hangover came out around this time. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there was you just had a, like, lot a lot of that, of that kind of stuff, stuff happening in the background, yeah. too. So there was kind of that brewing and the internet really full blast talking about a lot of that stuff nonstop. And then you also had these other two things. So it was kind of this weird, perfect storm of like, this movie was kind of doomed to fail from the beginning. The script leaked in 2008. Oh, jeez. So immediately websites started picking that apart right away before the movie had even come out. And the original version of this movie, script-wise, was very different in a lot of ways. And then like we've talked about, the marketing for this was ridiculous. Apparently, they literally had this idea of having Megan Fox be on, like, an amateur porn website to do Q&A promo for the movie. And that's not at all, like, so far tonally away from, like, what this movie actually is, but that's how it was marketed. So that's the fucking wild thing, because that is not at all the intention of what Cody or Kusama wanted. Exactly. So there are some great quotes all over even the Wikipedia article for this movie, and I jotted some of them down in my notes. A lot of the stuff is kind of coming from a place of her and Kusama being feminist and wanting to take the classic horror model and flip it on its head from the female perspective. Like, that's kind where a lot of this movie came together but she was also saying that they wanted to really explore just friendship between two girls going through adolescence and how that can be such an intense experience to where it can almost be sexual a little bit and even just also the moments of puberty like where you're kind of sitting alone and smearing makeup on your face like in, in a mirror that's something like Aaron you and I can't relate to like we just don't have that experience but V you might and Cody has even stated at some point or another every girl has been in that situation yeah i would say with with female friendships there's definitely almost even if you're not bi or gay that there's almost like a a romantic attachment you get to your friends in high school that it's like so like you're so loyal to them that if you like sit at the wrong table or you don't have lunch with them people are like oh why aren't you sitting next to your best friend it's almost like seeing you with like a guy who isn't your boyfriend like they're like what are you doing without that person it's like you're so bonded and you use each other to kind of get through that just insane time in your life because you know high school is hard hormones dating all that stuff is hard so it's like you cling to either one person or to like a very small group of female friends and yeah it's like you guys are just like so attached to each other that you like it almost seems like you're like committed to each other even if there is no romantic underpinnings and i think that opening quote hell is a teenage girl is such a great opening line to like encompass everything that this movie is trying to explore yeah again because like i'm trying to think back through like my experiences and granted i also had experience that not many other people do as a teenager because i went to a catholic high school and it was an all boys catholic high school so my experience is a little bit different there was a little bit of clickiness 
serious, but there was never like to that extent. I've had best friends and we were incredibly loyal, but it was never super intense. And like, yeah. it was never like a question of why aren't you hanging out with this person? It's because we are told explicitly from society and explicitly from just other people, like you can't be that way as a young male. Yeah, that is a difference is females are generally allowed to have friendships like that. And it's oftentimes just oh big deal whatever they're just friends guys get anywhere close to that it's oh no that's gay you can't do that right that's one of those things where like guys have very loyal kind of close friendships together and and that's one thing i think is interesting too v said romantic and there's a difference between romantic in terms of we'd say the, that loyalty that you will always be there that's somebody that you can confide in that's somebody that you can like be your truest mm-hmm. self with versus sexual attraction right? There's not necessarily always a sexual attraction going on there. You know, that's what's interesting about this movie is like, from Jennifer's perspective, there is definitely a sexual attraction between her and Needy, but Needy doesn't see it that way necessarily. But that is something that is different in terms of guys versus girls and those traditional gender dynamics is guys have to be the manly tough part of the romantic side. You are going to be loyal. You are going to be like true and like have that other person's back, right? But you can't be like open emotionally with your other dude friends. You can't be close in that way. We're like, yeah, we're going to like sleep in the same bed and like be physically close to each other. Dudes got to shake hands. Dudes don't hug, right? Like it's very much a lot of that. You can't go there as a guy. You know, if more guys were just more open about that kind of stuff and, like, did not put as much stock in a lot of the bullshit, maybe they would be better at having friends. Maybe they would be better at having, like, actual relationships with partners later. Like, it's the kind of stuff that it's interesting that so many movies do explore the same thing from the guy perspective, but leaves out all the other potential subtext because, you know, again, we're not allowed to go there. I'm hoping it came to a head. Like, I'm hoping that slowly but surely we're starting to move into a way of teaching boys it's okay to be emotional, it's okay to be loyal to friends and to express that through something as simple as a hug rather than a handshake. But I don't know. Like, But it's hard for me now as a 32-year-old who did grow up still very much in that idea of just men have to be this way women have to be this way yeah well on the flip side of that when i saw this movie when it came out i went with a bunch of co-workers like a bunch of us just did our usual thing we all went to the mexican restaurant in the parking lot of the mall we got wasted and we <laughs> walked across the parking lot and went and saw a movie we did that pretty much every week so we went and saw this movie just like a big mixed group of people from work and that was what i distinctly remember afterward is like a couple of the guys were just like whatever that movie was fucking dumb we didn't see <laughs> megan fox naked uh and i just remember one of the guys in our group who is gay was like I fucking loved it that movie was kind of everything that I could relate to from growing up and a lot of that weird friend dynamics of do I really like this guy do I not like this guy do I like him that way I don't fucking know I'm a teenager right it was just a lot of that stuff and I remember like a handful of the girls all being like yeah no we fucking love this movie so like this movie's made for a lot of people but this movie was not marketed to those people this movie was marketed to like doofy assholes like me and you who were just like oh Sue Megan Fox tits band and bros so that you know one of the biggest failures of this movie's release is just not being able to capitalize on that and you know thankfully this 
movie has found its place and it has a huge cult following now where people are going back and appreciating it. And frankly, like that's true of a lot of horror across all the different subgenres where like something doesn't necessarily hit when it came out for various reasons, but then 10 or 20 years later, it does suddenly pick up because people kind of look back and realize, hey, this movie wasn't meant for me. You know, like this was not made for me. This was made for somebody else or this movie was made with a different purpose in mind. So the movie has just as much place and validity and worth, right? Or it just... Yeah. was not necessarily aimed at me and you have to just accept that and kind of move on to that point like with the the marketing in mind and everything and this is a question for both you and v because this is a question i've been thinking over since watching this for the better part of the week how do y'all feel about the actual title of the movie jennifer's body do you like that title do you think it's a kind of a mixed bag or do you wish it was called something else what are y'all's thoughts because this is something i've been kind of turning over in my head for now for a little while I don't love it. I know it's a reference to a whole song, and I don't particularly care for Courtney Love, so, like, I didn't know that it at first was a reference to a whole song, so I just, it kind of went over my head, and then when I learned that, I was like, ah, that makes me like it even less. To be honest, I didn't know that until you just said that. Oh, okay. (laughs) I listened to it. It's a very creepy song. Like, it fits kind of the atmosphere of this movie, so it it totally makes sense. But in this case, Jennifer in the song is a victim, not the perpetrator. So I found it interesting that, like, that she chose to name the song after, you know, like a grunge song that has a woman being, like, tortured and killed by a serial killer versus the opposite, which is, you know, like, the movie's turning that on its head. So, you know, like, I like kind of the fact that she did switch it, but it's not my favorite. And it also, I think, lends a little too much to the sexualization. Like, I don't think Cody knew what the marketing team was going to do with it. So maybe she would have picked a different name. I'm okay with it. I think it could maybe have been something different. Before you answer, Aaron, to your point, V, where like she took it and flipped on said, Kusama herself was even saying how much the fear of female comes up, not, not even just in horror, but in movies and that this movie is kind of both a celebration of that but also taking it and making it part of the horror itself and that the person who survives and ultimately like gets their revenge too is also a woman in this case Mm -hmm. it's needy so it's both the woman being coming the monster and the fear of female but also a celebration of that from both her perspective as well as the protagonist's perspective who is also a woman and happens to be her best friend and to that point I kind of agree with you V and that it's a mixed bag for me. I did not know about the whole reference at all until you just brought that up. So I'll have to go back and listen to that song. But I'm like you, I don't really, I'm not a huge Courtney Love fan. I think it had the intention of, again, of just like this entire movie being an inversion of tropes. What if we make it so painfully obvious, like, oh, Jennifer's body, it almost sounds pornographic, but it reels you in that way. And then like, it's something completely different. But again, because of the marketing went so heavily into that, then the title does feel a little eye rolly. And that's kind of where I was at. What about you, Aaron? I agree with V as well. It's we could have come up with something better kind of thing. And that song specifically is, again, thematically, like not necessarily what the movie is going for. So I think they could have gone with something better. But I think that's just kind of a symptom of Diablo Cody being very, very, very pop culture conscious and aware and plugging as much pop culture stuff in there as possible, which, again, people want to complain about her doing that. But so many other male writers do the same exact thing and nobody bats an eye oh yeah the pop culture thing doesn't bother me really at all in fact it's part of the comedy in this because that fucking indie band is totally 
totally the type of fuckheads you would see, like, at a college bar when we... Sure, and I like that the movie is self-aware like that, but then, like, 90% of the soundtrack is also just that emo stuff in a not-ironic way, right? But that's the thing, though. The soundtrack goes from that, but then it also has Florence and the Machine, and it also has the sword in it as well. Sure. Because Kiss with a Fist from Florence and the Machine is used, and then, like I mentioned earlier, Celestial Crown from the sword is also in it, which, if you have not listened to the sword, great stoner metal. Go check them out. But yeah, so, like, it is a weird juxtaposition of that mid-aughts, late-aughts, douche, rock, emo fest, but then you have songs like that as well, and I feel like that's more of a Kusama, Cody call than the other stuff. But the, like, pop culture plugs, that's something that, again, like, people specifically give Cody trash for this, but, and this might lose some listeners too, but I'm just generally not a fan of that, unless it's done really well. I know people love the fuck out of Kevin Smith, but Kevin Smith, that's like the biggest thing that aggravates me about all of his movies is just the non-stop pop culture references. Give me some plot, give me some story, give me some characterization. I don't just need somebody to sit there and like recite, you know, every character from the Star Wars cantina at me. Yeah, the worst outcome of all of this is something like Ready Player One. Yeah, exactly, right? That's where it's at its worst for me, yeah. But people eat that shit up right and don't criticize it so you know that's one of those things where i think the title is just a reflection of that aspect of her writing but i don't necessarily know how successful it is but you know to v's point about how the trope is used and how the trope is flipped that's something that i do find interesting in this movie is typically in the like horror movies that we have most often it is the meek and kind of put upon teenager you know the one who is bullied or the like friend who's the not cool and hot friend who gets turned into some kind of monster and has kind of this new shift in the power dynamics between that person and everybody else around them. And so it's interesting that this movie says, nah, fuck that. We're just going to make the person who's already the dominant one in the relationship even more dominant. And I think what's interesting is that it just kind of further highlights the toxic nature of their friendship. You know, Needy, Anita in the movie, Amanda Seyfried's character, her nickname is Needy, right? And so that entire dynamic between the two of them becomes even more extreme once, oh, Megan Fox, who was already the, like, popular hot girl that everybody wanted to be with, who always kind of had a smart quip to go along with everything that she was doing, right? Now, she's a fucking unkillable monster who's super strong and unkillable and everything else. I would be reminisced if we don't bring up the fact, though, that the way that this happens, you know, despite however Jennifer is as a person even before this it still happens in a way that is very traumatic because she's abducted by the band spoilers I guess for Jennifer's body but we've been pretty openly talking about it the premise is that this band who's trying to be the next Maroon 5 I think is what they even say uh, (laughs) which that line made me laugh so hard but they uh, specifically the lead singer who is such a delightful douchebag in this movie I was so happy when by the end he gets his comeuppance but they decide that they've tried everything and now they're gonna try Satan to get popular I love that they're just like yeah I just looked it all up online I googled it sacrifice a virgin spell that 
that'll get us fame. And they abduct Jennifer after uh, that ridiculous fire at the beginning, which blew my mind away because people were literally like running out of the building on fire. And like even Needy is kind of just a little more calm about it than a normal person should be. But they're both traumatized and this band takes advantage of that. And it's almost set up like she's being abducted to be sexually abused, but they take her out in the woods thinking she's a virgin and try this sacrifice on her. And that's how she becomes a demon is because she's not a virgin and the spell backfires. So it starts off with her being a victim and then completely shifts into her turning into even more of alpha girl in her relationship with Needy. I love the different tropes of guys she goes after because she goes after like the traditional jock captain of the football team and then goes after like the emotional rights poetry and creative writing class emo kid. No one is spared basically from her rampage and like there's something pretty awesome about that but also horrifying. Well I did notice that most of her kills are at least confirmed kills because I have I think maybe she could have possibly been killing people we didn't know about but uh, of her victims are people that uh, Needy has affection for because totally. before the fire happens she makes a comment about Abed from India and how like oh it's great that he's like out and kind of socializing with the rest of the student body at this concert and then that turns out to be her first victim I mean that poor guy yeah welcome to America bud it's <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's mostly kind of framed his circumstance he just so happened to be like out and alone but I kind of found it like oh the one guy that Needy has like affection for in that scene is the first victim and I don't really think that she mentions much about the football player who's like grieving in the football field but the other two Colin and then Chip are clearly people that Needy cares about and it seems like when as soon as she shows an affection to a dude he has a mark on him like she's purposely going after them. And that whole like exchange between them towards the end where, and I'll quote this, like Needy says, you were never really a good friend. Even when we were little, you used to steal my toys and pour lemonade on my bed. And then Jennifer responds by saying, and now I'm meeting your boyfriend. See, at least I'm consistent. Mm -hmm. That is like the whole thing right there. It's interesting too how, again, Anita's nickname is Needy. But the way that that entire relationship really works is that Jennifer is the one who is actually Needy. Mm -hmm. She is the one that's constantly in need of validation, approval, and just needs somebody there to like have her back she kind of tries to flip that by being the dominant one and being the bully but really at the end of the day she's the one that's constantly like needing needy to be there for her at all times so anybody else that gets in the way of that anybody else that takes any minutia of her attention or affection away like v was saying is gotta go you know i can be the only one yeah so uh something that else i wanted to kind of bring up this is kind of shifting a little more towards the actual horror uh one of the creepiest images to me and also like kind of rules was when she does kill like the grieving football player that effect where her mouth elongates and like unhinges and shows demon face which is that is a horror trope that will always be effective for me and scaring me is like a distortion of the face in a demonic way and just that mouth elongating and almost like a snake I think I remember reading from the design and effects team like that's kind of what they were going for is that she's like a snake fully enveloping her victims which it doesn't seem like she enveloped them at all it seems like she rips them the fuck apart and eats like their intestines but yeah that whole scene was fucking awesome but also creepy as hell and it also has a possession trope that always gets me where it's the scene after like the fire and she leaves with the band in their van and then she shows back up at needy's house the scene that like made me jump out of my chair like when she's right behind her with the bloody mouth she then goes to the fridge and just starts eating i think raw meat or just anything she can get her hands on it was like a rotisserie chicken yeah <laughs> i love how she just fucking heave the 
that shit on the ground. But, like, then she turns around and, like, roars at Needy, like, in a demonic roar. And that always gets me. Like, that is a thing that will always scare the crap out of me. And then just pukes all that black blood viscous stuff all over her floor. And basically then leaves and lets Needy, like, have to clean it up. Jesus Christ. Yeah, again, talk about, like, toxic friendships. You just evil puked all over your friend's kitchen. And then you were just like, bye. Deuces, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, all the demonic moments with Jennifer. There were even a couple moments of, like, fuck yeah. But also just some generally horrifying moments. Another thing in that scene where she kills the grieving football player. I fucking love that J.K. Simmons is in this movie. And I did not know he was going to be in this movie. He was kind of a holdover from Juno, yeah. Yeah. I love how he's getting in his car and he's hearing, like, the football player screaming in the woods. And it's, like, him getting killed by Jennifer. But he's thinking it's just... (laughs) Let it all out, Let it all out. Let it all out. Let it all out. Yeah. Yeah, J.K. Simmons rules in this movie. There's some good cameos from established people in this. It was kind of like excision in this way. Yeah. With some of the people that show up for like very minor roles. Yeah, Lance Henriksen shows up at the very, very end. I fucking love that Amy Sedaris is Needy's mom. She is kind of one of my all-time favorite people in general, so I always love when I see her pop up in something like this. Interesting in terms of, you know, handsome kind of guys that you maybe have a little bit of affection for but then turns out they're actually kind of a douche uh chris pratt's in this for like (laughs) one scene and then you know they've got a lot of young up-and-coming people at least at the time they were young up-and-coming now they're like pretty established but it's interesting looking at like some of the what-ifs um like blake lively was one of the original choices to play jennifer emma stone and brie larson were both considered to play needy i can't see any at least for in terms of jennifer i can't see anyone else this role is to me perfect for megan fox Mm -hmm. like this is especially at the time yeah Yeah. she was so 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 in the moment of pop culture right then and there so unfortunately it was the perfect role for her but it was also just in general like the perfect role for her well and it was immediately underappreciated and lampooned totally totally because again the marketing and that's the thing like i've never thought she was bad at all like as much as people want to talk about oh everybody else in this movie is good except for like her in the lead she's great she's fantastic in this and i you know i've never really seen anything where she was overtly bad or at least she wasn't any worse than like the other lead fuck she was in jonah hex with josh brolin and people fucking love josh brolin and he's generally pretty great but like he's awful in that movie too you know so like don't heap that on megan fox alone and just be like well she was the only bad person in jonah hex no you know and she's in like the new ninja turtles movies and other than like the michael bay isms of those they can be kind of fun she's also in zeroville which i really want to see it but i don't want to like throw james franco any level (laughs) of views or money at this point like i love that book and i fucking hate that that's kind of where it got adapted and then weirdly enough several months ago i remember walking through the grocery store and seeing megan fox like on the cover of some movie called rogue where she's in a bunch of tactical gear hunting a man-eating lion dot 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 so fuck yeah that sounds amazing (laughs) good on her for like sticking 
been through this movie and kind of everything that came in the wake of it and still working. Well, and I, I saw that she was also in a 2021 horror movie called Till Death, and she has a couple projects already lined up to be announced, and I think another movie coming out later this year called Midnight in the Switchgrass. Yeah. Yeah, like, I kind of feel like in the same vein as the two from the Twilight movies, I think they kind of got typecasted, and even before them, like, she definitely got typecasted. Yeah. And, you know, it, it sucks to read about, too, because, like, she obviously has, like, all these expectations thrown upon her since Transformers. When you read about it or, like, some of the stuff she's talked about, struggled with a lot of, like, mental illness, has had OCD and had history of self-harming and things like that. And to just be, like, this expected, like, pretty face, we're gonna make you the model for our film, kind of sucks. And it kind of sucks that she didn't get her due back in 2008, 2009, when this movie dropped. I am glad now that it, it finally is getting the due it's deserved and she's getting praise for it but like come on guys we could have we could have done this a little sooner but i hope she continues to have a successful career because i think she's fantastic in this movie (laughs) yeah i also just wanted to add um she plays like the mean girl in confessions of a teenage drama queen i'm not sure if you guys have ever caught that but that was clearly targeted towards my demographic of a teenage girl and i never saw transformers so like on the line of this movie actually being meant for teen or young women like i knew her as carla santana from that movie the mean girl and then now she's playing a mean girl in jennifer's body like it makes sense if you look at it that way and kind of like skip the boy movie that made her famous yeah she plays an excellent mean girl um i think she also was like a mean girl in some uh mary kate and ashley movie way back in the day but i never i never (laughs) saw that see i'm glad we brought you on for this episode then because like i had no idea about that Mm -hmm. i don't know about you aaron but i just know her as she's the girl in transformers and like that's how her career kind of started for me well it's good context because i knew that that's the thing that she broke out from but the fact that that's not where she like started you know so yeah it's good context that v brings up for sure to flip it i guess too that's one of the things that amanda seyfried is most known for is her role in mean girls and yet in this movie she is not the mean girl mm-hmm. also interesting too seyfried was almost cast in fox's role in transformers so there was like already weird crossover between the two of them reading interviews with them too it's interesting like how close they got while they were making this movie and just how good of friends they apparently still are like to this day just from how much they kind of bonded i mean they were kind of at an age when they made this movie where they were still very close in terms of the state of life that you're in as these characters that are in the movie that's the stuff that like behind the scenes i like hearing that everybody got along everybody's friends they still like hanging out with each other now you know like instead of just oh they were at each other's throats the whole time and hated each other i'm glad that's the case because their chemistry as just being best friends in this movie i mean not just the sexual angle of it but just the entire encompassing thing as co-stars and being friends as characters is great they seem like they are just natural at it there really wasn't any performance in this movie i did hate what they're trying to accomplish everyone was did exactly what they needed to to the point where again even adam brody as like the lead singer of that band is such a fucking good scumbag in this movie yeah that scene where like as they're about to murder her is both kind of funny but fucking terrifying from like again like we just kidnapped this underage girl and brought her to the woods and now we're gonna sacrifice her to satan and we're gonna joke around about it and sing eight six seven five three oh nine while we do the murder yeah it's definitely sinister for sure it's very sinister yeah on that note too as far as like other casting what ifs i like that they got adam brody for this and he's kind of gone on to like 
have several roles as really good-looking, charming, but ultimately, like, skeezy dude. They originally were considering actual musicians for that role, so they, like, legit looked at Pete Wentz from Fallout Boy and Joel Madden from Good Charlotte for this role, and I 1,000% do not think they would have worked that way, because being real-life rock stars, they already have the surface level, oh, you're already probably pretty skeezy, right? Like, there's never that level of, maybe I could trust this guy, maybe not. I like that Adam Brody, like, from the get-go, kind of immediately puts that to bed. But he does it in a way where you're still constantly kind of wondering, like, is he going to come around eventually? It turns out, no, he doesn't, right? Like, completely unrepentant, even all the way to the very end. Dude, I didn't think he was going to come around at all. (laughs) He just was a scumbag from start to finish to me. They were the ones that caused the fire in the bar, right? They purposely did that as kind of like a smokescreen. Exactly, like, maybe, right? That's what we can assume. As the fire is breaking out, he's watching it happen and he's just like, huh, interesting. Oh, look at that. Yeah. yeah, like, it feels like they're in on something there. Well, I always wondered if the fire was started by, like, physical means or if their song was, like, an incantation because they have studied some form of paganism. <laughs> yeah. Because it kind of just happens out of nowhere. And it's, like, right when they hit the chorus, it flares up, which could just be, like, a cool, you know, movie making when the music swells, the big thing happens. But I kind of thought that since we didn't really see them, like, tampering with anything, that their song was actually like a appeal to satan in a way yeah that's a good point i didn't think about that it does crack me up how throughout the entire movie you just constantly in the background here through the trees and everybody's like <laughs> fuck this song i'm tired of hearing this <laughs> <Yeah>. shit <laughs> And I, I love how, like, a needy is, like, uh, almost like the audience's surrogate in that regard, because it's just like, we all know where the song came from, the place it came from. And the song is such a cliche of that folk indie rock breakout that was happening right around 2008, 2009, of just like, you know exactly the type of fucking people are, that are performing this song. And that's something that Heather loved when we watched this, because she was just like, oh man, it took me back. I remember, like, a lot of the, you know, music I listened to at the time, and a lot of the parties I went to at the time, and all I kept thinking was, like I was never into like the whole emo thing at all but man do I remember being around a lot of people who did at the time I grew up in a school system that was 98% black and I was one of the few white kids growing up So a lot of stuff like that I just completely missed on entirely until I got to college and was suddenly around more white kids and I was like, oh, y'all are into like all this kind of stuff? Okay, this is not for me necessarily or this is different or I just like wasn't used to like seeing this or growing up with this. I don't have affection for this. And that was certainly one of those things where I was just like, I don't get this whole emo thing. But then I had memories of, oh yeah, like two or three of our good college friends were definitely into like flat ironing their bangs and wearing tight jeans and shit during those first couple of years of college. Yeah. So it was constantly like around me at the time. And I remember all of that kind of phase happening. I just don't necessarily like I was never into it. It's not just the song title though. And the lyrics, it's also their name low shoulder. This movie is very much aware of the type of band it's making fun of. I know they're probably not at all like this, but for some reason I kept going back to like, this is what Mumford and Sons would do 
if they hadn't gone super popular famous. Yeah, of course they'd go to like Devil's Kettle, Minnesota and try and sacrifice somebody to Satan to get popular. Well, no, not not Mumford and Sons because that's straight indie. Let's go like Dashboard Confessional. Let's yeah, let's, yeah, let's that's go a better that route, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. Which you know, basically they did. They came to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. They played Eagle Palooza, and I'm sure they like murdered somebody while they were here. <laughs> and then that's they had a song on the Spider Man soundtrack. <laughs> what band did you uh, have in your head whenever you watched this movie? I thought that the low shoulder might be like a slight reference to Fallout Boy because like there's a Fallout shelter sign, yeah. and then like yeah. low shoulder is like a like we see at the end. It's a a sign on you know the side of the freeway warning you of a low an actual low shoulder. And I kind of thought that I mean it's it, we also see a Fallout Boy poster in Jennifer's room, so I kind of thought that maybe like it's kind of a bit of a stretch, but you know they're kind of both almost like warning signs like this is a fallout shelter this is a a low shoulder area and that a lot of indie bands were kind of taking things from like obscure references that are kind of out in the real world and i believe if memory serves me correct because i was a fallout boy fan at the time but it's been a while they totally got their name from seeing those like fallout shelter warnings around the united states I apologize to the Fallout Boy stands who are still out there if I am wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So on that same note, the band in the movie, other than Adam Brody, is a real band. And the front of the band wrote the song. Speaking of like, we just grabbed shit from pop culture. The band's name is No Country. And what fucking book and movie came out that same year that were like very popular in 2007 when this movie would have been made? No Country for Old Men. So like, what else is that referring to, right? And they changed their name to Wildling in the like teens and that also made me wonder like did these guys just watch game of thrones a lot and they're just like that's our new band name wildling (laughs) but yeah they're apparently a real band so that was that also kind of cracked me up these weren't just random extras guys that they got to make this fake band um they were a legit band that actually wrote that song So one thing I want to kind of bring up real quick as a question to y'all, and I guess let me frame this around something else interesting in the wake of this movie. So they actually did a graphic novel tie-in that was published by Boom Comics and written by Rick Spears. And it primarily follows the victims and kind of shows you more about their personalities and their history to kind of color whether or not you feel like they deserved to die. Because that's something that I've also heard people talk about is Jennifer's only killing like these guys that didn't do anything and like you know we don't know that or don't know that necessarily but I guess where I'm going is how do we feel about the band who perpetrated this crime against Jennifer and really started this entire chain of events essentially going unpunished and becoming famous and then meeting their comeuppance over the credits not even like in the actual text of the plot and in the movie it's not Jennifer who gets her revenge it's Needy essentially that murders all of them I'll answer some of that and uh, just apologies to people listening there is a huge downpour happening right now so if you hear any of this happening around me yeah that it came out of nowhere so <laughs> it's very atmospheric yeah. 
for yes. the podcast. Well, I kind of like that the guys didn't necessarily deserve anything because, like, there's been so many times in other horror movies where, like, there are female victims who are innocent. So, like, if it's a flip yeah. of that trope of, like, evil man goes after innocent girl, then it's evil woman goes after innocent boy. So it, it makes sense, other than maybe a few slashers where, like, oh, she had sex and did drugs and that's why she's being punished. I feel like that trope is almost not as prevalent as people like to say that it is. So... I think that there's more of, like, an evil man or entity goes after innocent women, so why would the guys, like, deserve to die if it's just, like, an inverse? And also, it would take away from that whole, like, hurt, killing them to hurt Needy, because, like, yeah. Needy's a good person, and she likes good people, so Jennifer is going to go and kill the good people. Yeah, and that's interesting you bring that up, because in the beginning, when you meet some of the guys who associate with Jennifer, they all seem like douchebags, uh, like Chris Pratt's character in the five minutes he's in this movie seems like a gigantic douchebag i agree with you v like i don't really see the problem with that just because uh, again it, it, the inverse of that is usually the case with horror movies at the end of the day they still get their comeuppance which is interesting the thing that i find fascinating about this movie is that low shoulder kind of drops out of the movie for a chunk of time yeah. they're, they're always kind of in the backdrop but like they're pretty much out of the movie for such a chunk of time where this movie really does settle well jennifer is the main bad guy but when you really think about it she really isn't the main bad guy it is a low shoulder shoulder they're the ones who did this horrible thing to jennifer and jennifer might be taking it out on needy and that's villainous but at the end of the day low shoulder like you think is getting away scot-free because like the movie kind of ends and like they're still around but then the credit scene happens where needy like escapes and goes to murder the fuck out of them and it is almost like a scene where i want to get up and stand up and cheer just those screenshots of like their dead bodies littered across the hotel it brought a smile to my face especially like that final one of the lead singer with the knife impaled in him and it's the same knife that he used to murder Jennifer earlier in the movie. I just think that's like such a good image of him just slumped down against the wall dead with the knife sticking out of his chest. So it's like a good fuck yeah moment. I just get a little disappointed that Jennifer didn't do it because yeah. I feel like if the movie was written today, it would be them maybe putting aside their differences or maybe their weird kind of toxic symbiotic relationship they have and like joining forces to attack the band who did this to Jennifer because I've, I've noticed movies now have more of turning the girls who are enemies but they actually like play with that trope and make them like friends in the end or friends from the beginning that was kind of almost unheard of back in that time because I, I'll watch dramas like made for teens now and I'm expecting there to be like girl fights like their, their way there kind of is in Jennifer's body and they don't happen because they're purposely trying not to have pit like two women against yeah. each other. And, and I wish there was just like more of that in this movie of like Jennifer's not the enemy, Needy's not the enemy. They should try to work together to fix the real problem. Yeah, and to that point, that would make sense because their connection is so strong as friends that regardless of, of how Jennifer is as a friend to her, they obviously have such a best friend connection to the point where like they almost are linked to each other telepathically, supernaturally, even to the point where like that scene where like she's having sex with her boyfriend Needy at the same time Jennifer kills the emo kid and she like feels that yeah. like she feels that Jennifer's doing that and it's also kind of implied earlier in the film maybe even before her transformation I think like right when the fire is breaking out she has some kind of unnatural feeling that something's happening with Jennifer and the band and like has that mm -hmm. bad feeling to that point I would have loved if this movie kind of went in this direction kind of like you were saying V where they sort of team up however what if they kept it to where Jennifer is still kind of killing innocent people 
but Needy accepts her as her friend and is like, I'll help basically feed you guys to like mm-hmm. keep you alive and keep you strong and let's go like get this band together. So like it still leaves it off. And Maybe, like, uh, but doesn't that just reinforce the toxicity of their relationship that Needy is still the one like exactly having to feed into that literally? But like think about that. Like if it ended that way, like that'd be such an interesting place for the movie to end too. But I do like the ending of this movie. I do like that Needy kind of stands up on her own and confronts that but it would have been also kind of satisfying to be like you know what instead of fighting back I'm gonna fully give in to this relationship this dynamic we have you know even if that's problematic into itself that would have been an interesting horror ending like where it's not quite a good ending I think I might differ with you there I kind of like the way things in between the two of them because something that we all struggle with is dealing with toxic people in our lives, whether that's friends or family or whoever, and how do you want to deal with them? And you have that guilt around, like, I feel obligated to, like, stay in this relationship, but I know it's best for me to, like, end things and cut that out and move on. And so I kind of like that the movie ends the way it does between them, at least, because it's Needy finally saying, I'm cutting ties, I'm ending this relationship, and I'm going to move on and get away from this toxic pull that I've been in this whole time especially when it gets to the extremes of well you've ruined my life you've killed my boyfriend you've killed my friends that's pretty extreme right should I stick around probably not and so I do kind of like because it gives that message that ultimately if you are in those kind of toxic relationships yourself there is still hope that you can like move past that and you can get away from it not just that you're like doomed to kind of always be stuck in that cycle So I kind of like that that's how the movie ends. I just wish Jennifer maybe got revenge on the band herself. Yeah, that's the big difference is I'm more with V on it where like I think Jennifer never really quite got the revenge that she deserved to get on the band because at the end of the day she was a victim that got turned into this succubus. Yeah, that's, I guess, kind of where my thought process is coming from, is just, like, it would have been satisfying to see her kill the shit out of those douchebags, basically. You know, they still met the end that I wanted them to meet by Needy's hand. It's just a minor gripe, I think, at this point. Cool. I think, really, the last thought that I have is, I wish... We can all collectively as a society, but as horror fans specifically, kind of keep this movie in mind the next time that anybody gripes about, I'm tired of seeing the same stuff over and over again. I'm tired of seeing sequels. I'm tired of seeing remakes. I'm tired of seeing like franchise rehashes. I want something that's original. I want something that's different. I want more things written by women or directed by women or starring women or whatever. Anytime that people kind of gripe about wanting those things, so much of the time it then comes down to like, okay, well, did you check out this movie? No, I didn't. Okay, well, we got to do better about actually boosting up movies like this when they come out, you know, because this movie could have been a much bigger deal at the time. And this movie could have been much more influential immediately instead of 10 years later being influential to people who were, you know, now making their own movies. And again, especially for this movie being an original idea, no franchise ties, not a like remake. I mean, it's exactly what horror fans constantly say they want. So we got to like make sure that we're giving those movies the chance and propping them up when we have the opportunity to. Written, directed, 
the two main roles all women yeah totally. again that's why it's so frustrating to think about the marketing that was surrounding this movie because like the whole thing is so female creatively based and it's so successful in what it's trying to do and trying to be and it's fucking funny too i can't overstate that it is such a funny movie yeah maybe a little bit of the dialogue hasn't aged well but even that feels like it's kind of a product of the time a but also kind of in the context of the rest of the movie it feels like high school again like we all heard that shit in high school we may have even said it when we didn't know any better and we weren't mature uh we were just little snot-nosed teens even though it, it is very much like adults playing teenagers in the movie it does lean into that style it's a shame but at the same time i'm also very excited that it's become much more high regarded in the horror community at large i would love to see more stuff like this not just love to see it i would love to see it universally praised at the moment it's coming out Cool. So on that note, do we have any other final thoughts on Jennifer's body? As far as horror newbies go, uh, I know I waited till the very end. This is a great movie to start off. Like, yes, there are a couple of solid jump scares, so get ready. There, There's a couple that'll make you jump, but it's pretty solid in terms of just being a good starter horror movie that's creepy enough and has you have a lot to talk about surrounding the movie. But to get a good idea, if you're looking for maybe transition into modern horror where it's at now, this is a great movie to revisit, especially if you want to watch something that has a lot of sexual and feminist text behind it. This is a great one to start with, so I highly recommend that. And if you just want to see, like, J.K. Simmons just being an innocent science teacher who has a fucking, like, claw hand for some reason that's never explained. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I should mention, by the way, V, when we were talking, you actually dressed up as Jennifer for Halloween one year, didn't you? Yeah, um... October 2019, yeah, so, um, yeah, because obviously after that 2020, there was no celebrations, but yeah, I, I dressed up as Jennifer's body for work. My old job used to be really into events and Halloween and stuff. So everyone was dressed up and only like three people got the reference. But the best part of that story is I was always the first one into the office. So I was in like a cheerleader's uniform with gray face, like dead makeup. And there were two like janitor electrician guys and they're like fixing something. And it was like dark and no one else was around and they just jumped seeing me because they were not expecting a anyone to be in that early and b no one to be dressed like a demonic cheerleader at 8 30 in the morning so that's one of my favorite moments of just like seeing these two like dudes just like freak out because all of a sudden there was me in almost true jennifer fashion just like appearing out of nowhere as a scary cheerleader <laughs> you should have just yelled at them i'm gonna eat your soul and shit it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie's got a lot of great one-liners. <laughs> nice insult, Hannah Montana. That was another one that got me pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was good. All right, cool, cool. Well, that is going to be it for this episode. Derek, you want to take us out? Sure. We are Watch If Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron and me, the cowardly co-host. You can catch us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts now. All the podcatchers these days. We are on Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. Please follow us on there. Please continue rating, reviewing us, and following us everywhere you get your podcasts. Check out our Spotify music playlist. The link is on top of our Twitter page, pinned on top. You can also get to it through our Podbean website. Shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our bumps at the beginning and end of each episode. He is at Party Gator, Opossums, every other. Big Clown, right, is the other. Yeah, Big Clown and one 
once again, this episode should be coming out before Goner Fest in Memphis. So if you have a chance to go and definitely go check them out, you will be able to find dates for when they will be playing. So if you are in the Memphis area, definitely go check them out. It'll be a lot of fun. They've got some interesting names this year. Uh, uh, Henry Rollins is going to be like one of the MCs for the event. So definitely go check it out if you got a chance and you're in that area. Yeah, and V, uh, where can people find you and your work at? Um, yeah, so you can find my novel Shadowcast on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. My three short stories coming out in a few weeks are called Exit 13, January Release, and Legacy Employees. Uh, they will all be on Kindle. And anything else, you can find me at my website, vpmorris.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at twriterepeat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just got my book of Shadowcast, and uh, I'm excited to dig into that soon. All right. Well, I guess there's only one thing left to say, and that's Derek. Sally's evil. Not just podcast evil. She's evil evil. <laughs>